Thank you all for being here today for another episode of Our Living Legends. Uh, a wonderful way to celebrate Black History Month, but really we're coming to figure out a great way just to celebrate those who are connected to our congregation and so many amazing stories that need to be told. And today is not a, a different day from all of that. We have the absolutely amazing Dr. Stephen Milner with us. Um, who is former chair of the African-American Studies at San Jose State. Is On that four called? different occasions. On four. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A chair's term uh, goes four years. Okay. And usually after four years, you've had burnout mm -hmm. from report writing, um, mm -hmm. teaching, et cetera, et cetera. So you try and transition and let uh, other people get some exposure okay. and some experience. But four different occasions, I had to chair the department. Wow. And in each of those occasions, the department was threatened with being uh, destroyed. Really? Uh, yes. And uh, now San Jose State doesn't uh, face that kind of burden because uh, now there's an ethnic studies requirement for graduation mm -hmm. for all students. Wow. But in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we always had to fight just to stay alive. Hmm. And uh, I was able to uh, help uh, with others uh, guide us through some of those murky waters. Absolutely. And, and, you know, looking back at history now, like it wouldn't seem like that would be the case at San Jose State. I mean, you have Speed City that rises out of that. You have this connection between activism and sports. You, I mean, it's almost like a hub in many ways for African-American thought and, you know, pushing the envelope. But just to even hear that even there, um, it wasn't always clear sailing or easy sailing. Oh, for people in America, especially people of color, it's never been and it never will be smooth sailing without uh, facing uh, challenges in life. Wow. Uh, that's what we all have to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's jump into it. So one of the first questions I have, um, we talked about it, you chaired the, the African American Studies Program really in the, the field of history four times, but your degree actually was in sociology. How did you make that, that kind of shift from one to the other? It is a strange kind of evolution. Um, to get into sociology, I was attracted to sociology when I was a high school student in a place called Duarte, uh, Duarte California, which is hmm. in L.A. County. Okay. Uh, our family got to L.A. County on the 27th of January, 1960. And I never forget that day because it was the first day in California. It's also my father's birthday. Huh. So okay. it's easy to remember. Um, and he was a visionary in his own way. He wanted us to have a chance to get university educations. Mm -hmm with five children, mm -hmm. all of us born between 1945 and 1951, he was not gonna be able to educate us in Columbus, Ohio, because mm -hmm. tuition was high there, um, everything was expensive, and he had a postman's salary. Wow. And a postman's salary in the 50s and 60s was not what it is today. Okay. And my mother, with five kids, 
being born between 45 and, six, and 51, she was a stay-at-home mother. So his vision was to find a place, California, okay. where all his children would have a chance at higher education. Mm. In the 1960s, you could go through from K through graduate school without paying any tuition in California. Really? That was a lure. And with five kids, that's what attracted him. It was partially the weather, okay. but it was also the weather of uh, education, yeah. and that was his uh, real obsession. Absolutely. Both, <clears throat> both he and my mother had gone to Ohio State, okay. but they couldn't finish because mm. it was the tail end of what was called the Great Depression. Mm. Although if you knew my dad, you knew he never put those two words together because he said there was nothing great about the Depression. <laughs> and he was accurate. <laughs> correct, correct. Um, because, correct. you know, it was a time when a people were dependent on charity, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad's family never accepted charity. They mm -hmm. never wanted that. They were, you know, really uh, intense in terms of their focus on um, hard work yeah. would wow. deliver. Wow. So then, so that's what shifts you to uh, California, right? Yes. The education, and I mean, just even think about education not coming at a cost. Like, that's a whole like line of conversation that we could go in, in the way in which education now has become an, another issue why you don't get education. It's not because of ability, but really it's just because of cost, right? Like, well, conservative Republicans put a stop to that in the late 60s when Ronald Reagan was first elected governor of California. He not only, um, you know, became uh, someone that people of my generation mm -hmm. with my politics tended to uh, reject mm -hmm. uh, because Reagan said, uh, let the blood flow in the streets when the mm -hmm. students were protesting against the war in Vietnam. Wow. And that was something that, uh, you know, really, um, you know, I've never forgotten, yeah. but he also imposed the first tuition on public education in California. And from $50 a year, it has escalated now right. to thousands. thousands. Tens of thousands. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you always have to watch and oppose people who try to keep the barriers to higher education uh, up. Yeah. And, uh, conservative Republicans at that point, and some would say even today, are in the forefront of that. Mm. So uh, we were very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, so then, so now that, that gets you into school, that opens up a, a world of opportunities, but that still doesn't speak to how do you shift from sociology then to history? Like, was there always something there? What, what really drew you to kind of make that transition in your professional life? Well, I was living history uh -huh. because we got to California just before um, things were really beginning to percolate and kick off. Mm. Um, we were living seven miles away from South Central Los Angeles mm. in August of 1965 
when uh, the first Watts Rebellion, because it wasn't a riot, mm -hmm. it was a rebellion against the circumstances of life that all of us were facing. Mm -hmm. um, the police in LA County were 95% white, mm -hmm. and um, they were aggressive. Yeah. And we saw that uh, mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. um, so those kinds of things, uh, you know, were impacting me. Mm -hmm. And I was a newspaper reader from an okay. early age. Okay. I read Jet Magazine every <laughs> week, but I also read the uh, Chicago Defender. Yeah, it's a huge one. Yes, mm -hmm. it was, uh, in the 60s, it was a daily paper. Wow. And I had a lot of relatives in Chicago, mm -hmm. and we got that in Columbus. Mm -hmm. But I also got the LA Times every single day. Um, I learned to read through uh, getting exposed to that from my mom and dad. Yeah. And I was reading about the civil rights movement every day in the early 60s. Wow. And I noticed that sociologists tended to support the idea that people of color should be treated with respect and uh, rights should be granted. Hmm. So when I graduated from high school, mm -hmm. the first major I declared was sociology, I 18 years old, mm -hmm. and I never wavered from that. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got to Berkeley, mm -hmm. still studying the movement, I noticed that there were very few folks who were doing serious work about how the civil rights movement was based on people, hmm. not just leaders. Correct. And Correct. that's the way a sociologist looks at social movements. Hmm. So looking at that and spending time in the Deep South, um, I got immersed in reading everything I could about the history of slavery, yeah. the history of segregation, mm -hmm. and the history of struggle against the movement. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated from Cal, mm -hmm. I had several chances to teach in different locations. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to go to the, the Ohio State University. <laughs> the Ohio State. Yes, <laughs> and that would have been going home. Okay. I had a chance to teach at the University of Alabama. Okay. And then I had an offer to teach at Ole Miss in Southern Studies and Sociology. Hmm. And Mississippi was the most challenging spot that I could have selected. Hmm. And I've always had a disposition to take the hard road, not the easy road. Because hmm. you take the hard road, you can sometimes lift as you climb and help others along the way. Yeah, yeah. So now you make this huge shift and you move now Mississippi, right? And you become one of the, one, one of the first groups of African-American teachers, correct that? Well, I went into Ole Miss in 1982. There were uh, exactly 20 years after James Meredith had uh, become the first student there. Wow. And there were still bullet holes in the buildings where the rioters had tried to prevent Meredith from enrolling. Wow. Um, and uh, 
it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. I will never forget the first day I went into a class. I had a, a class of 113 people on my roster. Okay. When I walk in, um, there were about seven students who immediately, seeing me, stood up and walked out. Uh, three of them were white males okay. who spit on the floor and said that I didn't come here to Ole Miss to be taught by one of these, you know, wow. new, and they used the N-word. <laughs> so at that point, I knew I was in it. Yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> for the next two years, um, you know, I stood my ground and um, made a difference. Yeah. Because coming to Ole Miss from Berkeley, um, the black students, and there were about 200 black students at Ole Miss at the time, okay. they looked at me as someone that they could identify with and they expected me mm -hmm. uh, to make a difference. Correct. So I became the BSU advisor in the first semester I was there. Yeah. And the issue we took on was uh, disassociating the University of Mississippi from the rebel flag, the Confederate battle flag. Mm -hmm. And that was a struggle. <laughs> the students were deeply involved and deeply committed to that. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a year and a half, um, we managed to pull enough demonstrations uh, to force the university to diso disassociate itself from, from that flag. Wow. And that, that in and of itself in Mississippi is is huge. I mean, even recently, as, as recent as 2020, 2021, there's still places that are wrestling with the usage of the Confederate flag, right? Um, where it's flown, where it should be taken down. And to know that back in the 1980s, you know, you guys are leading. Well, it, it was enough of an issue that the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan came to the campus and marched in protest against the university disassociating uh, itself from that flag. Mm. And one of the places that they marched, uh, they marched down and around my house on campus because I was living on a campus-owned house okay. for safety and security. Mm. They marched around the, uh, my house uh, and this was in, I think, March of 1983. Uh, and they marched around, and when they came around the second time, I was standing in my door. And they saw me standing in my door, and I was holding some equipment <laughs> that um, indicated that I was a son of my father <laughs> who had taught all his sons mm -hmm. how to go into the woods and the fields uh, mm. and hunt. <laughs> and as much as I admired Dr. King, I also respected Malcolm, Malcolm. X. <laughs> I felt that coming. <laughs> so I had the equipment mm -hmm. to let them know that while I was a nonviolent person against mm -hmm. people who were, you know, peaceful, mm -hmm. I was also a black man who would protect himself mm -hmm. if it came to that. And they quickly marched up the little hill, and <laughs> I had no trouble at all after that little encounter. Wow. 
Wow. So, I mean, this is amazing work, amazing things that are happening at, you know, Ole Miss. What makes you transition back to California? Well, I love my family. I love my wife. Mm -hmm. And I would not subject my children mm -hmm. to the kind of passage that they would have encountered uh, going through um, that grief. Yeah. So during the time I was teaching at Ole Miss full time, my wife and my children were still living here in San Jose. Oh, okay. And teaching at Ole Miss was a blessing, but it was also a curse yeah. because uh, I could not allow my children to go to the schools and endure the kind of taunts and the other stuff that would have gone with that. Yeah. And, and my wife was from Louisiana, okay. uh, so she knew what the South was. Absolutely. So we had an agreement that, um, you know, we keep things together and I would do what I could and we would resume our life here in California because California is the best place. <laughs> and I've lived in Mississippi and part of why I went to Ole Miss is my uh, slave ancestors on my mother's side had been slaves in Mississippi. And my slave ancestors on my father's side had been slaves in Virginia. Okay. So that played a, a big part of it. Yeah. But uh, getting back to California was, uh, was always the plan. Yeah. But I also did 12 summers teaching summer school at Ole Miss. Okay. Because, you know, they liked my work. Hmm. And uh, I liked giving back yeah. to uh, the kids in Mississippi. And of course, I, I can't help but take this segue. Like, so you mentioned um, that you have been able to trace your ancestry, right, both to slavery in Virginia, but also there's, there seems to be some amazing history through your maternal side, right, with your slavery that, that happened in Mississippi. Right? Well, uh, on my mother's side, uh, the slaves served on a plantation 20 miles east of Jackson. And uh, the slave owner had three children with uh, his slave named Sabreth. And when he was uh, going toward his passage toward death, mm -hmm. he gave her three bags of gold with the instructions that she be taken to Vicksburg and put on a, uh, a flat boat and sent to the north. Wow. And she took those three bags of gold and her three children by him, and ultimately bought uh, 120 acres of property in um, Meigs County, Ohio, which is right on the border of the Ohio uh, River. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, a stone's throw away from the south, because yeah. when you went across that Ohio River, you were in West Virginia or mm -hmm. Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And I was always warned stay away from the South uh, as a kid mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons. Of On my father's side, the slaves from uh, Virginia had been emancipated as well. Hmm. So there was a little colony in Meigs County and Jackson County, Ohio. And some of those slaves had been uh, emancipated by people like Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. and 
Sally Hemings and those. And those folks were all mingling together in um, that part of Ohio wow. in the 1840s, 1850s. And Sabreth used her acreage mm -hmm. to let slaves who were trying to escape have a resting place, mm. kind of like a, a station on the Underground Railroad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> all that was part of, uh, you know, the legacy I had as a kid growing up in Ohio. Wow. We would go down to the family homestead once a summer mm -hmm. and visit, mm -hmm. and then we'd sometimes have family reunions. Mm. Now, I have to tell you, some of my relatives were color struck, <laughs> if you understand what that means. Please, please expound. <clears throat> a lot of blacks in the 40s and 50s thought that, quote, light-skinned blacks were better than dark-skinned blacks. Mm. And that was especially troubling uh, in some families. Mm. I had some relatives who would sit in the family reunions and they wouldn't speak to the darker skinned Negroes, as wow. we were called, yeah. because they thought that, uh, you know, that they were, quote, quality people mm. and others were lesser. lesser. Uh, and some of them bragged that, uh, you know, that they had the, the, the blood of the <laughs> aristocrats. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And some were bragging about the fact that they were Hemings relatives and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. None of that made any difference to uh, to me. <laughs> uh, I just liked the best fried chicken. <laughs> but you know, a lot of my folks had to go through a consciousness changing in yeah. the 60s when people stopped calling themselves Negroes and started embracing uh, the beauty of blackness, mm -hmm. and the beauty of blackness is the fact that people struggle without turning their back on their fellows. Mm. And that's uh, the ethic yeah. that I've always uh, encouraged yeah. people to have. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, to me, that brings up so much, right, from, you know, that this amazing history, this emancipation that we have, even before, you know, there's this, the movement of the, the abolition of slavery, we have groups that are that are that are literally living into what will hopefully become for you know true for everybody else but still laden in families you know is a history of the vestiges of slavery the, who makes one better what makes one better and even the way that that affects you know black families um it's always amazing to me you know um which to me makes it almost even more pernicious when we hear about stories of you know, let's not talk about, you know, race or let's not talk about the ways in which this is implanted into structures or into institutions. Like it was a thing that happened then and then once it stopped, everything went away. And we can constantly see that that, not only is that not the case, but it never has been the case, nor will it ever be. Unfortunately, life is a struggle. Yeah. And um, you have to turn to family and you have to turn to the good book mm -hmm. um, in many ways to, uh, to get through this life and to retain your dignity. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, was thinking uh, about uh, that first day of teaching at Ole Miss and uh, before I went into the class that morning, I read the 23rd Psalm mm. because I knew 
<laughs> and it was plain as day yeah. that I was in the valley hmm. and the shadow of death was, was all around. L literally marching down yes, your street. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, and, you know, again, you, you're doing great, amazing segue, right? So, um, so how does, how did and how does faith kind of inspire your story? How did it help you through to kind of become well, who you are? It, my first consciousness of language, mm -hmm. um, the Lord is my shepherd, mm -hmm. and the prayers that children are taught, taught mm -hmm. uh, that's my first consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it was coming from my mother, mm -hmm. from my grandmother, mm -hmm. and the first kindergarten that I went through was in the basement of a church mm -hmm. because I went to a segregated uh, school system in Ohio. Okay. And um, we, did, we had no facilities for kindergarten, but they were gonna make a way for folks. And Train our kids. the Second Baptist Church on, Third, on Second Avenue in Urban Crest, Ohio, opened its basement to the kindergarten. So we went down there and you know, we learned our ABCs mm -hmm. and we also, you know, got our Bible stories <laughs> because this was in the mid 50s and yeah. you could still get that in the mid 50s. Mm -hmm. So um, I've learned over time mm -hmm. who will stand up for us and why. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dignity of uh, the Lord in anointing us and the struggles that everyone has to go through right. personal and collectively um, has not been lost on me. Yeah. Um, and looking at the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and studying where the people based their struggles. Yeah. The black church in the South mm -hmm. was the bedrock. Yeah. And I've been to all the major churches in the South and worshiped. Mm -hmm. and got contacts with people who were the backbone of the Montgomery bus boycott. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ultimately, I was able to uh, interview and publish wonderful stories about them and ultimately meet uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks mm -hmm. in Detroit on January the 20th, 1980. Wow. And one of the things that we talked about um, was uh, how her faith allowed her mm. to sustain her life in all the turmoil that, uh, mm. that she encountered. Yeah. And I certainly understand that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. This is, so, <clears throat> so we talked about some, some, some of the history. We talked about family. We've talked well, a little bit about family, some of your older history. But I also hear that you have a variety of, of hobbies since retirement right? Um, any, any of those hobbies you would love to, to speak to? Well, the most important hobby I have now is that I'm a caregiver for my eight-month-old granddaughter, uh -huh. my second granddaughter. Okay. Uh, and my wife, Joyce, and I, we take care of our granddaughter, Isabella, <laughs> um, eight months old, five days a week from seven in the morning until six in the evening. <laughs> so life has come full circle. <laughs> right, right. Um, when I was at San Jose State for 
more than 25 years, the last 25 years of my 43 years there, I, wow. I would teach the black family course mm. because family is the most essential um, structure in any society. Mm. And I also taught the black child course. Uh, and when you teach the black child course, you have to take it from infancy mm -hmm. through adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, and now um, I've studied all that, but I've come back and I'm now a caregiver. Mm -hmm. So my hobbies, reading, following uh, the struggle, mm -hmm. um, teaching cinema courses and watching movies mm -hmm. um, takes a back seat to my caregiving of, to my eight month old. Yeah. So I'm now watching for first teeth, <laughs> making sure that, uh, that everything is taken care of mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. the diaper changes. <laughs> and that's the most masculine kind of stuff <laughs> that I can do. do. That Absolutely. I could ever do. Yeah. Absolutely. That's as important as standing in my door protecting my house. Right, correct. And in many ways, that's exactly what it's this is one and the same in many ways. This it's is you exactly standing, one in, and the same. standing yes. in your door, protecting your house and the legacy that will go. Wow. Yeah. Well, wonderful, wonderful way, way to phrase that. Wonderful, wonderful way to phrase it. So thinking about your story, and I, I imagine there are a variety of other things that we could talk about. I know that there's ways that even while you were teaching at San Jose State that you entered into teaching at the penal in, in penal institutions as well. Um, any piece that you would like to speak to? Oh. I, you know, I always introduce my classes at San Jose State with uh, a, a kind of joke. I would announce that, uh, that I had done five years at Soledad Prison, hmm. and I really had. Um, and I did five years at Soledad from 1987 through 1992. Okay. Um, locked behind seven steel doors. Mm -hmm. But I would, you know, I would say that, and I say, and if you don't want somebody who's been in prison as your teacher, you better get up and leave now, because, you know, mm -hmm. I disclose this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, you know, would pause for 15 seconds mm -hmm. and mention, and I did all that time as a teacher. Wow. Because in the late 80s, blacks were 6% of the population in California, mm -hmm. but 40% of the prisoners. Mm -hmm. And if you are really going to serve our people, yeah. you have to serve them where they yeah. are. Yeah. And there were people in the prison system who were just doing everything they could to transform themselves. Mm -hmm. And if I had a chance to go in, and I had that chance, I was going to do it, mm -hmm. but it was nerve-wracking because uh, when you go into a prison as staff, you're warned, you know, if something kicks off, we are not going to negotiate your release because they can't. <laughs> they really can't. Mm -hmm. But they would give me a squawk box and they would tell me, okay, if something happens in the classroom, hit it mm -hmm. and we'll be there within 28 to 32 seconds. <laughs> and See I that? laughed. <laughs> right. I said, do you know what they can do to me in 28 seconds? <laughs> right. And, you know, 
So they started stationing a guard right outside the classroom. Mm. And you know who the guard was? Mm. She, she was five foot two, <laughs> and she must have weighed 115 pounds. And she would sit there while I was in the classroom. Okay. And it tickled me because <laughs> she would always be reading as she sat outside the classroom door. Mm -hmm. And I'd look down at her reading material, and I'd say, okay, turn it to the 23rd Psalm. Mm. And that's what I would read before I would go into the classroom wow. as well. Yeah. Because the classroom was fascinating. Mm -hmm. We had one third Mexican. Okay. And they were split between the northerners and the southerners. Okay. So they would <laughs> often be at each other. Right. We had one third whites. Okay. And then we had one third blacks. Wow. And pretty good mix. Yeah, it was a mix. But the first day I went in, they were sitting in their groups. And I said, oh, I, I got to change this. <laughs> so I said, if you want to stay in this class with me, mm -hmm. you're going to have to sit alphabetically. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to do that, you're not going to stay in this class and you're not going to get this credit. Mm -hmm. Because being in the class gave them a day off for good time. Wow. So there was a real incentive. Yeah. So I broke all that sitting in, mm -hmm. you know, clusters. Yeah. yeah. And they, a lot of them liked it because I said, when you're in this class, you are not in the prison. You're in my classroom mm -hmm. and you're getting academic credit. Yeah. So it was a haven for yeah. them. Wow. But it wasn't a haven for me <laughs> because when a lockdown would happen, mm. I'd still have my homework assignments. So I would go into the prison when they were locked down and I would go to every wing and deliver my homework assignments to my students. Wow. And I've been to X wing in Soledad, which is where the Soledad brothers and the guards had their encounters way back in the 70s. So I've seen protective custody, mm. I've seen X-Wing, I've seen every part of Soledad. Wow. And it's, uh, you know, it's intense. Oh. It changes you. Yeah. It, you know, not when you're visiting, but when you're working Market. there, yeah. you're in prison too. Mm. Mm. But that's where our people were, yep. and that's who I wanted to reach. Absolutely. And, and sadly enough, it's probably where our people still are. A lot of them. Yeah, quite a bit. Well, we've often talked about, you know, disparities between African-American children and, you know, others, white children, Asian-American children. In your experience, have you seen progress towards that end or has that disparity only gotten worse? Well, um, when attention is taken away from um, the causes of, uh, of poverty, uh, and, and that tends to be hopelessness. Mm -hmm. When kids go to school and they don't have teachers that believe that they can do it, mm -hmm. um, who don't take the time to, uh, to educate them, who don't assign books and then follow through to make sure that they read. When I was going to those wings in the prison to give my homework to those prisoners, mm -hmm. I was doing it because I was telling them, that their work counted. Mm -hmm. If you have teachers now who don't really care about mm -hmm. what their 
students produce, then the students aren't going to care themselves. Mm -hmm. I knew from the time I was six years old that I had to be twice as good mm -hmm. to get half as much. Mm -hmm. That's the saying that, uh, you know, my teachers raised us on. Mm -hmm. So I worked twice as hard mm -hmm. to get my grades. Yeah. And it was still a challenge. Yeah. Um, so the quality of teachers is what's really important in terms of guiding folks through toward um, achievement. And the quality of ministers mm -hmm. is also just as important. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. I feel like that that directly impacts the the, the community um, as best as possible. And <laughs> whether people utilize it or not, just your presence there, the voice that you can provide, the opportunities that we, we get a chance to provide as the history of the black church is always important. Yes. From our after school program to our food program, things that are just inherent to the way that we think about ministry it's like we can do no other you know um, as I said I started kindergarten in the church basement mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the church and education as far as I'm concerned have always gone together yeah, and must go together absolutely absolutely so closing out then, um, as we, we've talked about a variety of aspects of your story and still plenty more that we didn't get a chance to touch. Um, for those that are watching, for those that are listening, what would you like them to remember most about your story and your life? Well, my parents made a way. Mm -hmm. And they made a way so that uh, the road would be easier for me. Mm -hmm. But they also left a legacy and they told me and my siblings to do what we could to make a way for others mm -hmm. and to stay on the path of the righteous. Mm -hmm. The five kids that came from Columbus, Ohio's segregated circumstances, my oldest brother became a professor at Cal Poly. Mm -hmm. He, had a, he has a PhD in physical chemistry. Wow. So nobody can tell me that black folks can't do <laughs> right. science Absolutely. and stuff. Absolutely. My other brother has a PhD from the University of Oregon. Mm -hmm. I have a PhD from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. My sister had a law degree from Stanford. Mm -hmm. And then there's always got to be one who <laughs> Just the that, yes, <laughs> my baby brother retired and didn't work after he was 49 years old because he has a law degree from Harvard <laughs> and worked in Portland and did well. So all of us, you know, got educated mm -hmm. and it was all because of the sacrifices mm -hmm. that those before us made for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is amazing to come from segregation to five children with advanced degrees, um, despite all the odds, right? I think for me, that's part of the beauty and the ingenuity of the black, the black community, black families that oftentimes does get overlooked. Like we can still talk about where all the places that we need to grow, especially as a community, but man, all of these stories that show just how powerful we can be when we really get the opportunity still 
still always amazes me, impresses me. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Thank you. I felt like you were going to say something else. Feel free. If there's something <laughs> else you wanted to add, please, we will we'll no, take that, it. That, that's, that's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all so much uh, for your time today. I pray that you are encouraged, inspired, as we continue to talk to living legends. God bless you.